First reading is from Luke chapter 11. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after alighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. The Gospel of our Lord. Luke eleven thirty seven through 12, 3. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with the burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. 
the gospel of the Lord. Let me pray uh, before we sit. Our Father, uh, we we come before you and we ask uh, that uh, that you would send us your Spirit. Um, that that you would would uh, open our hearts to your word, um, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged and strengthen us where we need to be strengthened. Um, We want to see Jesus. And so we ask that you would reveal him to us as we look into your word in Jesus name. Amen. Please be seated. And you can uh, turn in uh, your service sheet to the uh, two readings. It's actually one long reading from Luke chapter 11. And we're going to look at, uh, at both of those uh, this morning. But good morning to everyone and a happy Easter. Alleluia, Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. As Laura said uh, when we started our service, uh, we are in the Easter season and we're going to be in this season for a number of weeks. Last week, we celebrated Jesus conquering sin and death by his crucifixion and resurrection. And over the last month, we have been mostly focused on the events leading up to and directly involving Jesus' crucifixion uh, and his resurrection. But now, knowing that Jesus has been raised from the dead, we're going to step back into the journey we've been on through the record of Jesus's life as recorded by Luke. That's the gospel of Luke. We're actually looking at what Jesus taught and did once he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's what Luke tells us uh, way back in Luke chapter nine, a few chapters before our reading. We're rewinding a bit um, to all these events leading up to Easter, and here we're learning what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be one of his disciples. And we're doing that by listening to what he is teaching his disciples that he's gathered around him and a bunch of other people who have latched on and are following around. Well, immediately after Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, he emphasizes the high cost of being a follower of Jesus. He is, after all, calling people to follow him as he makes his way to be crucified. In particular, he emphasizes that a life lived following him is not going to be one of comfort and power. At least it's not going to be one of comfort and power as defined by the world around us. The pursuit of comfort, a comfortable life free from worry and pain and struggle, it's, uh, that's what drives, I think, a lot of us here in New York City. And right alongside that, and maybe even more central than that, is the pursuit of power, of wealth, of influence, of making a name for yourself, or even of changing the world. But the comfort and power that Jesus offers is of a different sort. This comfort and power is defined by the presence of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus is asked to teach his disciples how to pray at the beginning of Luke 11, he responds by teaching them a prayer and by telling them to ask for his Holy Spirit. The same spirit who is known elsewhere in the Bible as the comforter. The one who speaks to the deepest longings and hurts and desires of our heart. 
And we see a different kind of power on display right after Jesus's teaching on prayer and immediately before our passage, where Jesus demonstrates his power over evil spirits and even over Satan himself. Jesus is the one who defeats evil by his death and resurrection. And so we come to our readings in the last half of Luke chapter 11. We, we come to these readings as a group of people seeking to figure out how to follow Jesus. Right? Some of us are newly baptized believers. Some of us have been following Jesus for a really long time. Some of us have experienced hard things in the church. We've suffered abuse and corruption, and we're trying to figure out what that, that all means and if there's another way. Some of us are tentatively trying to figure out if we even believe in this stuff anymore. Some of us are skeptical, yet, yet intrigued by Jesus. And so, as I was looking at this passage this week, I found myself asking a question that I'd like to see if we can answer this morning. The question is this. What are the issues of the heart that fracture Christian community and corrupt the mission we've been given from Jesus? Now, you may be wondering, um, where did that question come from? Um, where is this mission in this passage? How, how is it corrupted? And, and you might be thinking, yeah, that's not very uplifting, uh, considering we're in the Easter season and we're celebrating Christ's resurrection. But, but let's dig in um, and see what's going on. I think that as we do that, I hope that we start to see a few things in ourselves that can disrupt and destroy relationships and see how we're called to constantly go back and focus on who Jesus is and what he's done as the center of any Christian life and gathering and community and outreach. So first, let's look at the mission of Jesus. And that uh, same mission that we're included in as his disciples. Whenever the crowds of people who are following Jesus around start increasing, Jesus usually says or does something you don't expect. He usually does something that challenges people and even offends the people who are present. And our passage is no exception. Just prior to this, uh, the people who have gathered around Jesus keep seeking for some sign from heaven to confirm that he's the promised one who will bring liberation and restoration to God's people, the people of Israel, who at that time are under Roman oppression. They want some sign other than the fact that he's healing people who are sick, casting out demons from people who are oppressed, and teaching with an authority that challenges the religious leaders and lawyers of the day. They want something more. So Jesus responds with a reference to an Old Testament prophet named Jonah. He says, uh, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, many of us may be familiar with the story of Jonah. If you're familiar with that story, your mind probably forms an image of a guy who refuses to obey God's call, runs away, gets swallowed by a giant fish, and gets spit up after three days. Then he changes his mind about obeying God. And if you've never heard this before, you are right. This is a very odd story. But there's more to this story than a guy surviving 
being swallowed by a giant fish. And it's the rest of that story that Jesus makes reference to with his sign of Jonah statement. <coughs> the story of Jonah takes place about 700 or so years before Jesus's day in a time when the Assyrians were Israel's number one enemy. Nineveh was basically the capital city of the Assyrian empire. And Assyria is the force that destroys the northern kingdom of Israel and is threatening to exile the rest of God's people who remain in the southern part of the kingdom. God speaks to the prophet Jonah and tells him to go and preach to the Ninevites that God is going to destroy them because of their evil. Jonah thinks about this and then promptly gets up and books a passage on a ship to go as far away as he possibly can in the opposite direction to a place called Tarshish. Now, there's a whole lot of uh, events that happen that cause Jonah to be thrown overboard of the ship. And then he's saved by being swallowed by a fish and he spit back up on land. And after he acknowledges that he was wrong to God, um, he, he ends up going back to Nineveh or actually going to Nineveh for, Nineveh for the first time. This is the part of the story that's important for understanding what Jesus is telling us. God asked Jonah a second time to go to Nineveh and preach the message that God has for them. Jonah obeys and he walks around the city of his arch enemies, proclaiming that in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And here comes the plot twist. The Ninevites hear Jonah's message and they repent. They believe God and they dress in sackcloth. It's a sign of repentance. And the king proclaims a fast for everyone and the Ninevites appeal to God's mercy. And God, being a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relents. He doesn't destroy them. He shows the same mercy to Nineveh that he had shown over and over and over and over again to his own people when they'd gone their own way and made a mess of things. And Jonah, well, Jonah's furious with God. In fact, he straight up tells God that this was the reason he fled to Tarshish in the first place. Because he knew that God was, and I quote, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Jonah doesn't stop there. He then asks God to take his life, and then he goes and he pouts under a tree. Back in Luke, Jesus says that just as Jonah was assigned to the people of Nineveh, so also the Son of Man, that is Jesus himself, will be assigned to the people of this generation. Elsewhere in the New Testament, when Matthew and Mark, who wrote other accounts of Jesus's life, make a connection between Jonah and Jesus, they point to how Jonah's experience of being swallowed by a fish and being spit up on land is a sign that points forwards towards Jesus's death and especially his resurrection. And the result of that is good news going to the ends of the earth, to all people. And we see that in good news going to the Ninevites. It's judgment first, but it turns into good news. Well, that's the mission. The good news about Jesus going to the ends of the earth. The sign of Jonah is Jesus who defeats death, brings liberation from evil, and invites people from every tribe and language and culture into this kingdom. 
Luke here, though, seems to put a bit more weight on the last part of that sign, on Jonah's preaching to the Ninevites and their positive response to God's message. Think about it. The Ninevites are outsiders. Even more so, they are enemies that have done things to God's people that give good reason to hate them at worst or avoid them at best. In a sense, you can understand Jonah's reluctance to be happy that God's grace extends to even his enemies. But it seems that Jonah is refusing to accept God as he is, as he reveals himself. In fact, it is God's grace and mercy and love to others that repulses him. Jonah was happy to turn to God when he found himself facing death at the bottom of the sea but he's not too excited to see God extending that same mercy to others. And Jesus is focusing on this part of who Jonah is and using it to highlight how many of the people following Jesus around, particularly the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, are just like Jonah. He also throws in a reference to the Queen of the South, uh, which is another historical reference to when people outside of Israel are blessed by God and included in what he's doing. But his focus is on the response of those who supposedly belong to God when faced with God doing unexpected things like welcoming foreigners and outsiders and even enemies. What is their response, right? And so while, while the sign of Jonah is centered on Jesus's defeat of sin and death and welcoming people into a relationship of peace with God, where our deepest wounds can be healed, the sign of Jonah also serves as a warning to those of us who've already responded to Jesus and consider ourselves his disciples. There's a bit of a reversal of what is expected going on here. It's the outsider, it's the enemy that is being raised up to life. And so the question for us here is, um, what is your reaction when you see people being welcomed by Jesus or not who you expect. We can look at Jesus sitting with tax collectors and prostitutes and Samaritans and widows and praise how he welcomes in those people who are outcasts in his society. And we can see organizations today that reach out to the poor, provide disaster relief and send missionaries to far off places and we can give money to them and support them. And yet we can still be more like the Pharisees and teachers of the law in this passage that Jesus is about to pronounce a whole boatload of woes against. We can be more like them than we are like Jesus. You know, I, I really love uh, being part of Emmanuel Church here. Um, I think we've got a lot of really great things going. Uh, we, like I think any body of Christians and believers and seekers have a lot of areas that we need to grow in, but it's wonderful to see people growing and to, to meet new people who've joined with us and are, are trying to figure out what this means to follow Jesus and who Jesus is. And it's wonderful to gather around God's word together and to share Holy communion and to have potlucks and, and, and all of these things. Um, but we all come here together the certain level of brokenness and baggage and blindness. And we're often not even aware that we bear these things or grasp the depths of what these things are. And often these things serve to reinforce the divisions and prejudices that are commonplace all over this city and this nation and this world. 
The church historian Justo Gonzalez has this to say about how this passage in Luke speaks to Christian communities today. He says, but it may well be that no sign will be given to us but the sign of Jonah. It may well be that the sign of a church in which the spirit of God is at work is precisely that the most unlikely folk are brought in, like the Ninevites at the time of Jonah or like the Queen of Sheba in the days of Solomon, or like the publicans and sinners in the time of Jesus. The sign of Jonah may well be that barriers of race and class that close and divide so many other communities are torn down in this community of the spirit. Justo Gonzalez keys in on two barriers to the unity and peace and well-being of us as disciples of Jesus. They're certainly not the only two barriers, but they're pretty big ones. Classism and racism. Think about our community for a moment. It's actually frighteningly easy to exclude or tokenize people who are different than you, right? Especially in a city that prides itself on diversity. Who is it that you learn from? Who is it that you spend time with? What is it? What about people from different classes or cultures who have, or people who have a vastly different living situation or educational level than you do? Or I dare say a different political affiliation than you. The thing is, uh, this isn't about diversity for diversity's sake. Uh, we, we, we do want to be a place where people from different cultures and classes and ethnicities and vocations are welcome and genuinely impact uh, our community with all the particularities that come with all of this. But, but you can have the appearance of diversity and never actually get to the heart level issues that need to be dealt with. And so I'm not trying to, to be down on us, um, but I'm, I want us to be aware that as I think Jesus does in our passage here, um, wants to be aware of the ways in which it's so easy to be like the Pharisees and the religious leaders that Jesus is speaking against. And we don't want to replicate that. But as we move on in our passage in Luke, we see Jesus pushing us deeper into the issues of our own hearts that underlie what we do. And this is where the really hard words come from Jesus and the really hard work of being a follower of Jesus kicks in. It is hard work to be in a community of Jesus' followers um, and to not be superficial. It's really messy. It's really awkward. But the thing is, this is nothing new. In fact, I think that's basically the whole New Testament. Um, the whole New Testament is working out the mess of this in the early church. Paul preaches the gospel in cities all over the Roman Empire. There's controversies are erupting over Jewish customs and pagan festivals and the Apostle Peter stops eating with Gentile Christians for a while and only hangs out with Jewish Christians. And then Paul calls them out on it. And there's church councils are even set up. Uh, they're convened to try to settle these disputes. And we're just in the book of Acts when I'm talking about that stuff. And um, that's the sequel to the book of Luke that we're in. So, so let's, let's jump over to our second reading and take a quick look at what Jesus calls out in the lives of the Pharisees and teachers of the law and in our own lives too. There's a lot in there, but I want to draw out for us uh, three hard issues that I think can fracture Christian community and derail the mission of the church. There are, there are greed and fame and hypocrisy. Okay, so greed. Jesus gets invited over to the home of a Pharisee, and he causes a stir when he does not wash before dinner. 
this is not a matter of hygiene, like regular washing your hands that you or I would do when we go home before eating. Jesus skips a ceremonial washing. He skips a religious ritual in a religious leader's house at a dinner with other religious authority figures. And this understandably causes a huge stir. And Jesus, being Jesus, he doesn't sit back, but he pushes the issue further. He's pushing down into the issues of the heart. He calls them fools, um, which is a big time insult, implying that these guys don't actually know God. And then he pronounces woes against the Pharisees and then even more woes against some lawyers that who are present. And those are the guys who are the, the, the experts in the re religious law. He first keys in on the Pharisees' greed. Verse 39. So, and the Lord said to him, um, and that's Jesus said to, said to the Pharisee, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Right? This launches Jesus into the first woe. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tie the mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus straight up tells them that they are greedy and wicked. But he demonstrates his charge against them by going to an interesting place. He focuses on the manner in which they give the appearance of generosity and religious dedication, the way they tithe. The people of Israel were required by law to give a portion of whatever income they produced to the Lord. This was often measured in agricultural terms, such as seed and livestock, and it's livestock, and it's given to the priests in the temple. But it seems that uh, uh, by, by Jesus' day here, that some sort of system had been developed that was super, super detailed about what you give, down to the tiny amounts of herbs and spices like mint and rue. I don't even know what rue is. The Pharisees uh, were quite meticulous in following this system, but Jesus calls them out on it, on why they do it. Um, it's not to provide for the temple workers who did not have other sources of provision or to provide for the poor. No, they're giving it with an eye as to what they're keeping for themselves and for how giving will be of benefit to them. And it's all couched in religious terms like tithing that give the appearance of being godly and generous. Jesus instead focuses them on the inside motivation of giving, what we call the heart. Give from what's inside you. We'll get back to this in a moment. The second woe builds on the first and exposes the Pharisees' love of fame and status. You love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Fame, prestige, influence. Who has the biggest following, the most subscribers, the most invites to the galas and exclusive clubs and events? The third woe, though, is even more devastating. Jesus calls them unmarked graves that people walk all over, not even knowing it. In that culture, coming into contact with a dead person or a grave made you ritually unclean and excluded you from regular worship and life with the people of God. Do you see the irony? These people who are so focused on appearing holy and clean with the rituals and ritual washing are actually making all the people who are seeking to follow after them unclean. 
The third woe exposes that in pursuing wealth and status, they're actually doing the opposite of what all this washing before dinner is supposed to signify. They're defiling not only themselves, but all the people they're supposed to be leading and serving. Now, by this point, the lawyers are getting angry too. These guys are the religious experts of the law. And so Jesus doubles down and starts pronouncing woes on them too. And in doing so, he exposes their hypocrisy which matches the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Loading people down with burdens. This echoes the tithing regulations Jesus was just calling the Pharisees out over, but it's going further and requiring others to do things that you don't even do yourself. The second woe against the lawyers in verse 47 draws out the fact that they love the attention they get from funding monuments to the famous prophets and leaders of old. Yet in their hearts, they're no different than the people who killed those prophets. And the third woe charges them which much, with much the same thing as the Pharisees, that they lead people that they're supposed to be caring for away from the wisdom that brings life. All these things that Jesus is calling out in both the Pharisees and the teachers are focused on the way we can easily use religion just to serve ourselves. But there's also something that he highlights in the first woe against the Pharisees in verse 42 that we should not overlook. In all of this self-seeking religious practice, what is also being done is neglecting justice and the love of God. This gets to the core of why we give, whether it is of ourselves or time or our resources. If we give of these things and we turn a blind eye towards issues of injustice, or if we engage in issues of injustice without the love of God, whether it's in our community or in the world around us, we are in a precarious place where Jesus is pronouncing woes against what we do. Now, I think, I think we can see how things such as greed and hypocrisy and, and the pursuit of fame may be things that create an environment that's not welcoming to others and not healthy for ourselves, especially when it's coated with religion. What do we do about all this? Well, at the end of our passage, we find Jesus warning his disciples against the leaven of the Pharisees to be on guard because this greed, this desire for fame, this hypocrisy isn't just found in the Pharisees, but it can be found in any one of us. And he says, what is done in the dark is exposed in the light. And there's this contrast of light and darkness that he brings up. And he, he doesn't actually, he doesn't bring it out of nowhere. Um, he'd actually mentioned light and darkness earlier in our reading, a little part that we skipped over in Luke 11, 33 to 36. Let me read that. It says, No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. When, when we are made aware of darkness that is within us, 
One name for that is sin, right? And we've seen some variations on sin and greed and pursuit of fame and hypocrisy and the like. When we see these things in us, and when we're convicted that it should not be there, that we need to turn away from it, often our impulse is just to try harder, to be better, to give for the right reasons, or to really try to root out injustice, right? To love more. But that ends up just leading us back into the predicament that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were in in the first place. We can't deal with it simply on our own effort. What we need is first to pay attention to who we are looking at, to what we are looking at. Jesus compares our eyes to lamps, lamps that seem to shine light inside of us. And he warns us to be careful that light in us is not darkness. What are we looking at? What do we turn to? when we realize that we're not where we hoped we would be. We're not who we hoped we would be. We did something we really wish we didn't. Jesus is described as the light of the world. He's the one who shines into our hearts with the grace and love of God that sent Jonah running away. Don't run away. Don't be like Jonah. When we come to Jesus, um, you know, he may offend us, Right? He may point out things in our lives that we don't really want to seal with, so want to see or deal with. Yet he's the one who takes the hurts and the pains and our selfishness and our bigotry. He bears them himself. He replaces those things with the love of God. He takes the, 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 the death that we deserve on the cross. And he replaces um, the worst of us with, with the best of him. He gives us a true desire for justice and peace that lasts. And that's why when we talk uh, about uh, Emmanuel existing to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus, um, we start with seeing Jesus, right? It's not just a little slogan that we all like. Um, it, 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 that, that, that's where it starts. That, that's where we go back to. We look to Jesus, we see who he is, we let him feed us, we let him provoke us, we let him heal us, and we keep looking to Jesus, and he will shape us to be like him as we do so. So let's continue looking to Jesus. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.